elicitation is something that nobody knows is happening. It, they shouldn't. A good elicitation is nobody knows it's happening. It's not painful. People generally like you, and they will tell you information that they would not ordinarily tell under direct questioning. I think the most powerful elicitation tool is the presumptive. So what you want to do is you want to make a statement, whether that statement is true or false. You just want to kind of make the statement, and that person will have a tendency to confirm it or give you the correct answer. Welcome to the Waste No Day podcast, a podcast specifically for and about the home services industry as it relates to plumbing, heating, air conditioning, and electrical. More than a podcast, Waste No Day is a credo, a determination, a mindset. It is a never-ending discipline. It is a refuse-to-lose pursuit. It is a wake-up call every morning to waste no day. Now here's your hosts, Brian Burton and Nate Minnick. Hey, welcome to another episode of the Waste No Day podcast. Your hosts, Nate and Brian, hanging out with you once again. And we are excited to have on a special guest today. He is an ex-FBI agent. Dr. Jack Schaefer is going to be joining us. And we're going to be talking about some body language, some techniques to understand truth and lies and everything else. And a little bit about his story and experience that he had in law enforcement, in the FBI, as well as some of his time uh, now what he does is he is a professor, so we're excited to have him on. We're going to break all that down for you, but for right now, we're going to look to Brian for our quote. Deafness has left me acutely aware of both the duplicity that language is capable of and the many expressions that the body cannot hide. Terry Galloway. Yeah, I got to say, my body certainly has some expressions that I can't hide when I see Brian on his phone, literally about... 55 minutes of a 60 minute podcast. Wow. You were uh, just on your phone while I read that quote off my. <laughs> <laughs> yeah, okay. Well, I get five minutes. You get 55 minutes. It right. seems fair. You're going to keep talking to me or can I get back on my phone? Go ahead. Yeah, go ahead. Yeah. Oh, you're not going to talk now? <laughs> well, guess what part's staying in this podcast? 100%. We are not. <laughs> a good quote there, Brian. Uh, you know, body language is definitely something that is a, a unique study. And yet I think, well, it's one of those things that we all live, even if we don't all understand it. And that's what makes it body language because we do so many things uh, without even trying and we communicate so many ways that way. Uh, but it's, it's a unique thing to actually understand what each one of those elements is and how it affects the conversation that is not actually being had verbally. Yeah, our subconscious picks up nonverbal cues from people, has nothing to do with the words they're using, and a lot of times nothing to do with the tonality of their voice. But like a slight movement in their face can that we didn't even register consciously can change our attitude in that situation. These little nonverbal cues that, that are happening that we're not even registering, but all of a sudden we don't feel so comfortable or we don't like this person as much or we like this person much more than we did a second ago, just based on one little uh, movement or twitch of the face or something that, that changed everything. And we as professionals have to be as 
cognizant as possible of the nonverbal cues we're given off. But imagine how much more so somebody who's deaf and literally cannot hear the words that are being spoken is sensitive to body language. Absolutely, Brian. And it goes both ways because not only are, are not only am I watching you give off your verbal cues, but I am also giving off verbal cues, which are revealing things about my own thoughts and feelings that I may not necessarily even be aware of that I'm putting out there. For example, you know, you might be saying, we might be having a discussion uh, that we're, we're disagreeing about. And all of a sudden my face is making kind of a, a frustrated look. And I didn't intentionally do that. It just kind of happens because, you know, that's the way the muscles get trained when the brain is feeling a certain way. And sure enough, Brian picks up on that verbal cue and then understands that, uh, you know, I'm frustrated or we're having, we're having a difference of opinion. Those types of things happen all the time. And they can be particularly useful when you're in a client's home dealing with somebody that you've never met before. Because oftentimes these types of body language indicators are fairly universal. It doesn't mean all the time, but more chances than not, people will react in similar ways with similar body languages for similar feelings. Yeah, it may be universal. I mean, at least culturally speaking, like if you're in the United States, there are certain uh, verbal, nonverbal cues, pieces of body language that are universal. There are certain things that you can do. Well, Brian, I'm sure that a lot of things are universal, but I think there's even differences or variations of how people express things. For example, uh, you know, some people might, uh, I remember listening to a comedian uh, the one time and he, he was like, you know, there's a difference between people that raise their head when they see you and that nod their head down when they see you. And he was making a joke about how people are different. You know, some people raise their head like, yo, what's up, man? And other people, they nod their head down, kind of like, how you doing? Um, and so there's slight differences and variations about how people use their bodies to communicate somewhat similar things. Yeah, if you uh, if you read The Truth Detector, one of the books by our esteemed guest here, um, you'll know not to trust the head down guy. <laughs> it's, uh, you had to read it, but I'm, I'm sure we'll touch on it. If, if he doesn't touch on it, I'll bring it up. Yeah, and so we're really excited to have him on the show because I think so much of what we do in the trades is uh, is standing in front of a stranger and and trying to communicate. I mean, we've done episodes before about communication. We'll do more episodes in the future about communication. It's a massive part of what we do, especially if, if you're, you know, you're trying to get to that next level with customer service. You can't just be Mr. Fix-It. You can't just go in there and start turning wrenches or putting your meter on or, or throwing some refrigerant gauges on the system. You have to be able to communicate with a client effectively. That's what really makes a difference between a high-level great company and an average good company is the communication skills and abilities of its employees. And I, I say that because so many times we'll hear a client come back to us and they're not talking about how Frank's HVAC skills were just out of this world or you know uh, uh, James's plumbing abilities were above average. You know They're talking about how Frank was able to talk to them and communicate with them and show them the way. They're talking about how James's uh, ability to relate to their dog or their children or you know the fact that they had just lost somebody in their family made all the difference into world in the world to them at that time that's why i'm saying communication is a key piece in making the difference to the client everybody expects that when you show up you're able to fix what's going wrong but not everybody understands the ability to communicate that to the client and walk them through the entire process and that's what makes it different 
Yeah, you hear way more from our satisfied clients where we have over 5,000 Google reviews with a 4.9 average, I believe. Uh, something like that, yeah. Yeah, somewhere up there. And, and you hear way more about how the technician made them feel and what great people they were than technical proficiency. Way more. I mean, it might be one person out of every 15, 20 says what a good electrician our, our sparkies are, a good plumber our, our techs are. I got to tell you, Brian, I, I personally see a, a, a more reviews in this company than I believe anybody else does because I, I monitor the reputation. And like I can barely count any times that I recall it actually being about the skill. I mean, every once in a while, somebody's like super impressed with how they handled a difficult situation. Well, but they just, when they just walk in and immediately know yeah, what's going on and they yeah. already had another plumber out who couldn't tell them anything. Yeah, but it, it's so much more focused on how, how Brian was a great guy. He was a great guy. Thank you. Thank you. Keep, keep going. It wasn't this Brian. Certainly. Oh, all right. We could go back and you know, that might be a fun episode sometime to pull up some of your old reviews and see how it was. <laughs> yeah, that would be fun. <laughs> but yeah, it is, it is really personal based, uh, home services. And that's why we wanted to have on Dr. Schaefer today, because he is going to give us a lot of good insights and tidbits on how to create yourself a likable character. But just think, just think about what the what the dude is, man. He's a police officer turned FBI agent, turned author, turned professor, professor at a college, yeah, and pr- professor of law enforcement and criminal justice. And his job was literally flipping spies. Yeah, one of his many jobs, which is which is crazy. It's a bad, dude. But yeah, we are we're really excited to have this conversation. It's going to be a fun time. Yeah. And with that, we're going to put none other than Dr. Jack Schaefer in your passenger seat. Our guest today is Dr. Jack Schaefer. He is a psychologist, professor, intelligence consultant, and former FBI special agent. He has spent 15 years conducting counterintelligence and counterterrorism investigations and seven years as a behavioral analyst for the FBI's National Security Division Behavioral Analyst Program. He developed spy recruitment techniques, interviewed terrorists, and trained agents in the art of interrogation and persuasion. Dr. Schaefer contributes online pieces for Psychology Today magazine and has authored and co-authored six books and published numerous articles. He is a professor with the School of Law Enforcement and Criminal Justice at Western Illinois University. And man, are we excited to have him on the show today, Brian. Welcome to the show, Jack. Glad to be here. Thank you. Yeah, awesome. Uh, we're all we are very privileged to have you on, and we're really excited to get into your field of expertise today because so much of what we do in the home services industry focuses on client interaction. And any time that we're in somebody's home, any time that we're looking at a client, you know, the the potential of us having to charge them money for a service or a product or something that they need in their house is pretty significant. We usually get called out when something breaks or when something's not going well. And so you're in a natural, we already start off in a natural, um, you know, buying situation and anybody in sales knows that in buying situations, defenses and shields and, and smoke screens and all that goes up to prevent yourself from t- being taken advantage of, which of course is not our intention, but it's just kind of the natural state of somebody who's looking to buy. 
And so I think the conversation today is going to be really interesting in hearing what you have to say about detecting lies and understanding the difference of truth and lies and how that all applies into it. But before we jump into that, we want to learn more about you and how exactly you got into this whole thing. Well, I started out in, in uh, as a police officer in Hinsdale, Illinois, and then I joined the FBI. And then the last uh, seven years of my FBI career, I spent as a behavioral analyst. And I chiefly worked counterintelligence. In other words, I caught spies, and I tried to either catch them and arrest them or catch them and convince them to betray their country and then work for us oh. instead. <laughs> That's wow. crazy. Yeah. And, <laughs> It's like a, re- a real-life movie. Yeah, I, w- I wish it was as easy as a real-life movie, but <laughs> where this came from, and, and I also taught intelligence officers how to go overseas and collect intelligence without getting caught. So, uh, and, and also, suspects try to get them to confess. And the one thing I found out is it's threats don't work. You have to be able to develop good rapport with these people they have to you have to get them to like you and then if they like you then they will voluntarily do what you ask them to do or they will voluntarily do it because they like you and i noticed uh, that these techniques work really well in recruiting sources getting people to confess and then i thought to myself you know this probably would work in the um social world or the regular world where people are having business social environment. It turns out that all these techniques are very effective in the business and social environment. In fact, they work a lot easier because there's not as much obstacle in the way because it's a criminal confesses, he's going to go to jail for a long time. If a, a spy confesses, they're either going to go to jail for a long time or they're going to um, have to betray their country to help us out. So what you want to do is get use rapport building techniques to get people to like you. And they're typically hostile in the, the beginning. And that's similar to what, what you face when you walk into a house where there's uh, a problem. And for the person in the house, that is a crisis because their world is not in sync. And they have expectations. We get up every day. We expect everything to work. We expect to go to go to work. We expect the washer, the dryer, and all the utilities to work, and the furnace and the air conditioner. And when they don't work, we get very frustrated because that messes up our entire day. So you're you're facing when you go into a house like that. You're facing people who are not really, uh, I guess, friendly, or they don't want to. Uh, they want to, you know, vent their frustration. So you can use something called, uh, you know, uh, the three basic, you want to get somebody to like you. So you go to the door and you have to send these nonverbal friend signals. And basically there's three nonverbal friend signals. One of them is the eyebrow flash that lasts about one sixty fourth of a second. And as you're approaching that person, you want to make sure your eyebrow flash. It's a quick up, up and down movement of the eyebrows, and that's a long distance signal that says I'm not a threat. <laughs> so if you, okay. so well, I'm serious, and yeah, I, you know, I mention that, I mention that to people, and they go like, "Oh my gosh, I caught myself eyebrow flashing like ten times today." And I said, 
yeah, you've been eyebrow flashing your entire life. You just didn't realize you were eyebrow flashing. So you want to let that person know I'm not a threat. So you just quick eyebrow flash. And I want people to just go out and start observing. When you approach people, you'll see eyebrow flashes. You'll catch yourself doing eyebrow flash. The second thing you want to do is tilt your head to the right or to the left slightly, not all the way over, but just slightly. And what you're doing is you're exposing your carotid artery. And that is a vital part of your body. And if you expose it, you let the other person know, look, I'm exposing a vital part of my body. That means I trust you. So, and I'm not going to be a threat. And uh, if anybody has dogs, dogs typically do this when, when the owners come home. The dog tip, tip, uh, simply sits there and tilts his head. And that is, the dog is letting you know that they're not a threat. And a lot of times dogs will flip over on their back, expose an even more vulnerable part of their body. And that lets the uh, owner know that the dog does not pose a threat. So you can see that in the animal world, too. So what you're saying is is our our plumber should walk in and and roll (laughs) roll over (laughs) in front of the client. (laughs) Well, it's not like a forced thing. So... You, you, we do it all the time, and, and that's what kind of amazes people is we do these things every day all the time. We just don't know we're doing it. So what I'm trying to do is get people to recognize this. Uh, these are the things that people normally go through when they develop friendships, when they meet other people for the first time. And this is how we start evaluating non-verbally what that person is. Are they going to be a threat? Are they going to be responsive? So the last thing you want to do is smile. And what happens when you smile is you release endorphins. And endorphins make you feel good about yourself. And if I can make you feel good about yourself, you're going to like me. So you just want to approach that person and simply smile. And if you have to fake smile, make sure you raise your cheekbones up a little bit, you know, and uh, create some uh, crow's feet on, on the edges of your eyes. And that's how the other person realizes that, uh, it's a genuine smile, and in fact, it may not be a, a genuine smile. It is. And, it is uh, funny since I read the Truth Detector. I I'll, I've been looking at you know pictures of of the family, and and one thing I notice about my wife is when uh, hopefully she doesn't listen to this one is when I when I <laughs> look at certain pictures. If I catch her in a picture where she's just like playing with the kids, and it's you know or opening Christmas presents with the kids, and it's a real genuine smile, she has the creases beside her eyes but if if we're taking a picture where we all say cheese she she does that <laughs> kind of half smile but without the creases in the eyes and i'm like oh that's a fake smile <laughs> or i'm not saying yeah, not, not fake like she's not happy but it's a it's a smile that she's doing for a certain purpose not because she's genuinely smiling now i can everywhere i go i see the difference so i want to thank you for that look at you brian already <laughs> already a detective <laughs> so so that's the one thing you want to do. And does this work? Yeah, I was asked to train the uh, 82nd Airborne troops that were over in Afghanistan. And they had all their armor on. They were they had guns. They, had, they were ready to kill people. And then you expect them to go into a village and be friends with people. So all we did was teach them how to smile, eyebrow flash, tilt their heads. And that let the people know non-verbally, hey, they're, they're not a threat. When in fact, they are a threat. You know, and they will kill you, but the, the facade they put off is a friendly facade to let other people know that they're not a threat. 
Yeah, I so, also I also noticed the the belly thing after reading it after reading that book, um, watching nature documentaries with my kids, which is one of the things we watch more of than anything else, where like a you know matriarch hyena would run after somebody who you know a, a hyena who ma- made her angry. You immediately see him roll to their back and put their legs up and expose their stomach, and they get left alone. Like. Um, now I see that, that behavior is just them saying, I'm not a threat. You're the boss. Just don't tear me apart or whatever. <laughs> yep. That's exactly what they're communicating non-verbally. So very important to do that. And I know a lot of, a lot of times for us, it's just a job. We got to fix something. And I got something to fix after this and something to fix after, after that. I got a whole day of fixing stuff. It's just a job to me, but you got to realize that the people who are experiencing the crisis, it's, a, it's their whole world is upset. And so you have to kind of look at it from their perspective. And which brings us to another, like a more verbal, once you, you, you uh, introduce yourself non-verbally, verbally what you want to do is you want to use an empathic statement. And what empathic statements do is they let that other person know that you actually understand that they're in a crisis and you're going to listen to them. So a good, good way is to say, I bet you never woke up today and walk down and see a flooded basement. And immediately that person is then going to what? Yeah, you're down right. And I didn't do this. They're going to start venting these feelings, right? And so when they get done with their initial venting, if they're very angry, they'll start. <clears throat> what you want to do is give them an empathic statement again and say, Oh, this must be, have ruined your whole day, and then they'll vent again. And you'll say, wow, this is very disruptive. Let's see if we can't get down there and fix it. So what you do is you allow them to vent, and then use an empathic statement. If they continue to vent, use an empathic statement. And then you want to, when the people are done venting, you want to introduce a presumptive statement. Let's go down and get this thing fixed up so you can go about your day and get things back to normal. What's the person going to say? No. Uh, I don't. But what well, you, I mean, they, they that in that state of mind, I think they're like, yeah, all about it. Let's let's make that happen, right? Because they're just looking to get back to normal. Yeah, but a, a lot of times they have to vent that anger, and then and who's the only person they can vent their anger to? Typically, is the repairman that comes in. Right. Right. And it's maybe not even targeted at the repairman. It may be targeted at this wash machine doesn't work. The dryer doesn't work. The way they're putting things together these days, uh, you know, the, you know, there's, there's this general like anger. I've I've been there. I know that when you wake up and there's a problem, the cold, there's no hot water in the shower. You got to take a shower. You got to be somewhere, and you're going like, my whole day is ruined. And start yelling at the wife and the kids, and it's not targeted at them. It's just you're releasing that frustration. So. People should not take offense to that when they walk into that situation. In fact, they ought to just, they ought to like drive into it is what I say. And this is called controlling angry people is you want to let them vent an empathic statement. Don't throw fuel on the fire. And then they vent some more empathic statement than a presumptive. And then that person says, wow, they actually listened to me. And I feel better because I've been what? Venting. And the, there's a golden rule of friendship that says, if I can make you feel good about you, 
then you're going to like me. And I wish I knew this earlier in life, especially in college, because if, if, if a girl I'm with, I make her feel good about herself, then she's going to want to come back and feel that same good feeling again. So it's one of those things that uh, kind of builds on itself. In fact, she would probably start thinking of ways and excuses to see me again to, to get that same you know, good experience. So that's, that's kind of what you want to do is make that person feel good about themselves. They're going to like you and then they're not going to, uh, take it out on you because they've already been allowed to vent their frustration. Really good stuff already, Jack. And I appreciate the fact that we're just jumping into this. Uh, Brian, I got to confess, I'm a little nervous to continue the conversation because I might end up unknowingly disclosing some deep, dark secrets about myself. Here. <laughs> oh, you have no idea. <laughs> he hasn't even started solicitation yet. Or, yeah. <laughs> We're in a world of hurt here. So Jack, Jack I got to ask you, like uh, you're focusing a lot there on, on likability, right? So, I mean, the first three things you talked about with the, the eyebrow flash, the head nod, not the head nod, the head uh, angle, and then yep. the smile, like head those are all the head. Yeah. Thank you. Those are all focusing on even stuff that you can do like right at the front door. As soon as you even see somebody and then you get inside and you do with the empathy and which is one of our core values here, actually. So we focus on that a lot. And then you kind of bring in the, uh, you know, the proposal or how about we go ahead and fix this type of thing. That's all focusing on being liked, which is a good thing. But like, what's, what's the overall emphasis like that? Because we've, we've heard many times before, you know, it's far better to be trusted than it is to be liked. So how does that all tie together? Well, I think like is the beginning of trust because look at all the people that you trust. You like them because we don't trust people we don't like. So what you want to do is take these initial steps and that then becomes the uh, stepping stone of trust. And the other thing with trust is you tell people the truth. You know, you say, unfortunately, you know, this, this, this has to be done or that has to be done. And if you're truthful with people, then they will start to trust you. Because think of all the people you would like to do business with. I would like to do business with people I like. In fact, I buy things from people I like, and I don't buy things from people I don't like. Like I was, I went into a store just yesterday, and I wanted to buy a computer. And there was a salesman there that I just didn't like. He came across arrogant. He came across like, let's, let's get this over with. I need a commission. Mm. And... I said, you know what? I'm I'm still looking. I went to another store and bought the computer. Man, I got to I got to say your your uh, daily life cycle must be so fascinating <laughs> as you interact with people <laughs> and you can just read them like a book. Yeah, but that's that's something that our home, you know, our homeowners, our clientele can easily deal with in in a technician who's just having a bad morning and you really don't realize the damage it does when somebody just as you probably said to that uh, salesman, when somebody just gives you the, okay, we're going to think it over and we'll get back to you. And what's happened is your body language tonality has conveyed that you're only here to make your paycheck and don't really care about them or their situation or what, you know, flooded basement they're dealing with, or, or the fact that they don't have any heat in the middle of winter or whatever it is. And you have pushed them to another, you know, one of our competitors just by way of the fact that you didn't realize what you were coming across as. And I bet you if somebody asked that computer salesman, how did you treat Mr. Schaefer? He would have no idea. Oh, fine. I was a hundred percent pleasant. I did my job. Uh, he's just going to go, you know, 
shop around a bit. He'll probably come back and buy. Plus, Brian, yeah, I got I no, got to say, come back and buy. I got to say, on top of that, Brian, you know, um, sorry to interrupt you there, Jack. I, like we also run into a callousness too, because we do the same thing day after day after day, and like we can go from one furnace not working to the next furnace not working to the next furnace not working. And like, it's just what we do. We see this all the time yet to that person, they've never dealt with this before. Or maybe it's been a decade since they've had this problem before. And, and like, it's a big deal to them and we become callous to it because we see it all the time. How, how can we counterbalance against that? Well, we could, we, you can, well, I, I would assume each case is different. So you can kind of approach it, uh, what I would probably do is, is approach it from the standpoint of let's start investigating, see what's wrong. And, and if you continually update the, the homeowners, I'm one of those homeowners that I, I look over to everyone's shoulder because I want to learn how it's done so I don't have to get them back again. So I'm constantly asking questions and learning. And the, the people that talk to me, I, I like those, those folks. And if it's a project I can't handle, then I'll call them back because they they treated me well and they investigated things and they talk step by step. It's like in in a I don't know I had a, a dentist and he he's a, he's a talkative dentist. He says, "Okay, I'm taking this probe and I'm going to do this. I'm taking that probe, I'm going to do that." I'm thinking, "Oh, that's a good idea. I like that. I like to know what's going on." But some sometimes the homeowner will just say, "Go about your business and work." and not not be interested so if you just treat everybody individually uh, you know and you you have to kind of call all audibles if somebody wants to talk you talk to them if somebody doesn't want to talk you don't talk you go about your business get it done quickly and then and then their world is it's set and they're on their way so i think it's an individual kind of thing and this is where but one, knowing one something like the disc profiles and being able to quickly observe and um and differentiate between the four really comes in handy because to know that you are probably a c like my uh my uh counterpart nate here and that you you are into the information and the process and that is something that you want to know about whereas i am an i or an, uh, myself and am an i or an influencer um, i'm about the relationship and i don't like mechanical breakdowns of things and you don't need to tell me about my plumbing system you just need to kind of get in and out and do the job quickly, but then spend more time just connecting with me, knowing that faster really being a uh, proficient in, in personality types can save you a lot of time and aggravation. Oh, absolutely. And aggravation, I probably homeowner because it, it, it's kind of like with doctors. I mean, they, they walk in, they fix your problem. They say, man, he didn't talk to me. He didn't do anything. Like if you're an introvert, you go like, why would he talk to me? I don't want to talk to him. I just want him to fix the thing. <laughs> My point exactly. <laughs> and, 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 and me, on the other hand, I'm going like, what's that for? What's that instrument for? Why are you giving me this drug? Why is this going on? Tell me the process. And if they don't do that, then I become frustrated and I don't like that person. So you've got to be kind of flexible and adjust your communication style to fit the customer's communication style. So you can, it's, it's not that difficult to recognize the uh, communication style of the, your customer by meeting them. If you know they're an introvert, then you know that they don't want to chit chat with you. Like my wife, for example, is an introvert. She says, get down in the basement, fix the furnace and leave. I don't want people in the house. I don't like 
interacting with a lot of strangers. For sure. And but but part so, of our part of our job is to in some way we do have to connect. And this brings me to a great question from a friend of the show, Jake Steele from the Facebook group Home Service Heroes. Jake is a uh, HVAC technician at Kapler Mechanical. He asked, mm-hmm. "How do you get a homeowner involved uh, in your process, so to speak, who who isn't involved? It's like somebody who's working from home, doing chores, uh, generally just uninvolved. How do you get them to give you some attention and and let you walk them through a few things that you need to show them?" Uh, oh, I see what you're saying. So what you want, it's like the a- aftercare. You want to be able to go up and say, this is how you have to pre- preventative maintenance or steps you need to take afterwards. Sure, may- or maybe even you, you need to show them the system and, and explain to them what you need to do before you can pre- present price. But they're, they're somebody who's just kind of not really giving you much time or attention. Is there a, is there an easier way to do that without offending them or really snapping them to attention? You could say there's, there's, there's a lot, of, lot of different ways to to do this. There's some bad ways and some good ways. I'm going to show you some good ways because you don't want this to break down again, do you? You don't want to have to go through this expense again, do you? So if you use that tag question, I think that might be a good way to do it because what are they going to say? Yeah, get me that one, and and I'm going to not be able to take care of it, and then I'm going to be back again in in two years to get it replaced again. So nobody wants that. So you don't want the expense and you don't want the aggravation of another breakdown. So let's go through a few preventative techniques or let's go through some features that'll show that this will last longer than our competitors or our other machines that are out there, that kind of thing. Okay. So, so get, I think getting their you, attention would be asking them a question that you know the answer to. Yeah. And which they have no other way but to say, Yes, because how many people say, yeah, I'd sure like a breakdown in two years, and I'm going to treat this this mechanical thing. I want the cheapest <laughs> one I can get, and I want it to break down in two years, and I want to be aggravated again. The answer is always going to be yes. So then that you have their attention. So back to your, back to because, your and I appreciate that. That's a, that's a very good way to do it. But before we get off of the um, – initial meeting I was just you know Nate and I are looking at each other in our studio here and as you were talking about showing the carotid artery smiling um (laughs) yeah we're uh, thankful it's not a a video yeah yeah, the eyebrow (laughs) flash we're both doing it to each other and we we probably look like we had some kind of weird drug for (laughs) breakfast um what what I was wondering is is well number one I kind of wanted to talk about the uh Lancaster California um criminal criminal uh, gang that you helped take down or nearly single-handedly took down um, because it's it's such a cool correlation to what we do and such a you know worse version of it but is can you do the eyebrow flash the head nod and the smile all at the same time yeah i do it as soon as i walk in to see a suspect i'll eyebrow flash head tilt and smile and i'm I, you know i've been doing this for so long it's a part of me now and it becomes a part of my repertoire and I don't even have to consciously think about it anymore. And the other thing I I add in is head nodding. I'll I'll nod my head. Yes. Up and down. Because if I nod my head, yes, up and down, people have a tendency to mirror the, the gestures of people they like. So if you get the other person to start nodding their head, you're getting them to mentally 
assume the yes position. So that's pr- probably the preamble or the pre pre predicate uh, the predicate to uh, a yes answer is getting them to shake their head. So when I talk to criminals, I say, "Do so you really feel bad about what you did?" And then I'm shaking my head, and because we have good rapport, they're shaking their head. And if I see them shaking their head, that means mentally they're they're beginning to get to the to the word yes. So they're forming so the yes in their mind based on the body yeah. language that you're causing them to do. Yeah, and then you know another secret for for salespeople is this: there's something called the lip purse, and it you know it's just a slight outward pushing of the lips, and uh, it's 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 there. You can see it if you want. To, if you if you look for it, it'll be there. But what that lip purse means is. That person has already formed a negative opinion about what you just said. So if you're going through uh, this particular uh, thing you're selling, this product you're selling, is this, this, and, and all of a sudden you get to the price and it costs this, and then they'll, they'll purse their lips. That means they've already said in their mind, it's way too expensive. So what you want to do is you want to get that person to change their mind before they have a chance to articulate no. Because once people say no, there's a psychological principle of consistency which says that once we articulate no, we have a tendency to stick with no under severe circumstances. It's very difficult to get someone to change their mind once they say no. Is that like the same concept as when I state my opinion verbally? I have a tendency to want to defend that opinion, even if I'm proven wrong, because I've, I've already yes. put it out there. Yeah, psychological principle of consistency. So what you want to do is, it, or, or, or they'll say, well, these are the features, and you can name the features, and if you look at the person, this is good for car sales and, and any product. You, you look at the person, and they curse their lips, you say, okay, that's the feature they don't like. We have to, And then you have, what you can do then is use an empathic statement. And what you want to do with an empathic statement, the basic construct of an empathic statement is show you. And that gets the focus off you onto the other person, which they think that's where the focus should be. So they're happy about that. So you say, so you think this may be a little more expensive than you had planned on. And they'll typically give you a yes or a no. They'll say, well, yeah, it is a little more expensive. And then you say, well, let me explain to you the benefits, this, you know, this warranty lasts two years longer than normal. This is this, and you have this benefit and all these different features. So you're trying to get that person to change their mind before they articulate no. And that, that is very, very helpful. Now, I was going to say there's another technique that works really, really well, and that is detecting deception. And I call it the well technique. If you begin, if you ask somebody a yes or no question and they begin their response with the word well, that means they're about to give you an answer they know you're not expecting. And a good example for this is I'll send my kid off to do homework in his room and hear nothing but tomfoolery and shenanigans going on there, no homework. Kid comes out of the room and says, did you do your homework? That's a yes or no question. So the first word out of the kid's mouth is, well, that means he's going to give me an answer he knows I'm not expecting. Because when I ask that question, he's expect he thinks I'm expecting the answer, yes, dad, I did my homework. 
So when he says, well, it means anything but yes. Anything but yes is a no. So you can ask people uh, different yes or no questions, and if they begin their response with the word well, it typically means they're going to give you an answer that you're not expecting. So, you know, like I say, did you did you do the maintenance like on the refrigerator in this? I mean, did you, did you vacuum the back of the refrigerator all the time, or did you do this? Well, that means no. Doctors use this all the time because when I train, you know, doctors in these techniques, that you take your medicine on a regular basis. Well, <laughs> that mm. means no. Yeah, I like that. That that so, makes sense. And it's very simple, and people don't even realize that you're testing their veracity. Are you serious about buying this car? Well, that means no. You're not serious. Speaking of testing veracity, you gave an example in the truth detector about a German officer who was skilled at revealing the truth um, through casual conversation as opposed to interrogation. And I believe uh, you used the, I'm going to screw up his name, so I'm not even going to try that. I'm sure you know how to pronounce it, but he used the concept of eliciting eliciting the truth rather than detecting the lie. So talk about how that fits into this whole conversation. Yeah, what you want to do is if if you elicit the truth, then elicitation is something that nobody knows is happening. It, they shouldn't. A good elicitation is nobody knows it's happening. It's not painful. Uh, people generally like you, and they will tell you information that they would not ordinarily tell under direct questioning. So you can, the, the most, I think the most powerful elicitation tool is the presumptive. So what you want to do is you want to make a statement whether that statement is true or false, you just want to kind of make the statement and that person will have a tendency to confirm it or uh, give you the correct answer. So you could say, so it looks like this uh, was probably an accident. And uh, you can, you can either get uh, a yes or a no, no, it wasn't an accident. I, uh, you know, this deliberate, you know, this, this was a deliberate act that caused the damage or something. So you, what you want to do is just issue that statement and wait for that response. And then once you get the response, then you can use an empathic statement to get more responses from that person. So you, what you do is you take the last thing that person said, rephrase it, and then add, uh, issue that in the form of uh, another presumptive call that a presumptive empathic statement. All right. So Jack, I'm going to go out on a limb here because uh, I want to try to understand this a little bit more. Let's say that uh, we get called out. One of our electricians gets called out to a home and uh, the, you know, the receptacles aren't working or the lights aren't working. Something, something electrical system isn't working. Like how would using the technique of eliciting the truth kind of flow into that conversation? Uh, looks like your baby stuffed something into the socket that causes to go haywire. <laughs> uh, yeah. Well, no. Or it looks like it. It looks like you may have dropped this. It looks like you know this may have happened, and all you're doing is saying it looks like this may have happened, and that person's either going to say no, and then you'll see that hesitation and the lie, or they'll say, "Well, yeah, that's what happened." So they'll either confirm it or they'll put up more resistance. Then how? And then do, you it, it, then how does that tie into I mean, like when you get into um, the pricing and, and maybe that's maybe that's a little bit of another subject there. But like 
when you start presenting price and you're seeing the person in the lips and you're seeing some of those nonverbal cues that somebody's giving back, can you kind of tie that in and, and say something like, so it looks like you're, so it looks like you're uncomfortable with the price. Like, would you suggest actually putting that out there? Oh yeah, absolutely. Cause that's what they're thinking. How do you know that's what they're thinking? Nonverbally, you can tell that's what they're thinking. And if you say, well, okay, here's a good example. So, uh, looks like uh, you're thinking that uh, this may be a little more money than you'd like to, to spend on this project. And they may say, no, no, no. It's the features I want that, that, I, that aren't being included in this price. So it's not the price. It's the features that aren't there. Right. So you see how that presumptive works? Yeah. Yeah, very good. Or they'll, or they'll say, yeah, it's it's. Like we just wanted, we, we bought a hundred year old bungalow and we want the windows replaced. That comes out and says, well, it'll cost you like $40,000 for the windows. You saw a big lip purse from me and, uh, he knew something was wrong. He goes, it's a little more than you thought it would be. Yeah. So like way a lot more than I thought it would be for, for the windows, because we didn't want the kind of windows you're trying to sell us. We wanted these windows. <laughs> so you can see how you can, with a presumptive, you can, get a lot more information from that person and you're not attacking the person you're just putting out a statement you see what i mean pe- people aren't going to get defensive if if you're not threatening them and all you're doing is throwing out a general statement you know i do this all with, with you know even in, in class when i teach you know I, a student will purse their lips and i'll say so you didn't you don't agree with what i just said and they go well, how do you know well you told me non-verbally or they bite their lip you know they do a little lip tug and that means they want to say something but they uh they're they're reluctant for some reason so i always use an empathic statement and say so you want to you want to say something but you're a little afraid to say it and they're like well yeah a little bit well let's 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 hear what you have to say and then they're thinking how did he know i had something to say well i saw the lip bite so my my favorite my favorite thing to uh, chop up here is definitely the the introduction, the greeting, the 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 kind of warming up from the beginning, the the uh, head nod, the eyebrow flash, and the smile, because I've I've found in my career, and I was in my own truck for I don't know better part of two decades before finally uh, ending up in the office, but I noticed that. What started well ended well. So if, if I was yeah. able to bring that wall of, of anxiety or just, you know, uncomfortability down between me and the homeowner immediately in the beginning, everything went so much better. And we're just dealing with people who literally picked up the phone and called us to come over to their home. Right. And we still have to deal with this. You were instrumental yeah. in taking down a a white supremacist gang in Lancaster, California that was responsible for beatings and murder and God knows what else. (laughs) And I, and I I do remember from the book you talking about kind of like going up onto a porch uh, and correct me if I'm wrong, um, but going up onto a porch uh, initially to talk to some of these guys and you were a federal agent and I'm, I'm, guessing you weren't dressed like them and you probably didn't have some lightning bolt tattoos like they had and probably didn't look much like them or sound like them. So I'm wondering 
you know, comparatively, we're just going to see a homeowner who called us out and we're there to save the day, although it doesn't feel like that a lot of the time. But how did you, uh, apart from the smile nod, or did you do the smile nod and flashes you walked up? So how'd you break that wall? Well, absolutely. I walked up and knocked on the door. In fact, I put on my FBI uniform. I had the wingtip shoes back then and had the the suit, power suit on. (laughs) Yeah, I had the sunglasses. I walked up to the house because I wanted to know about it. I caught spies. I knew nothing about white supremacy, absolutely nothing. And my boss just said, go deal with that. So I said, well, I'm going to go right, right to the white supremacists to figure out what's going on. So I walk up, knock on the door and I said, you, the, the guy, the skinhead came to the door and said, who are you? I said, I'm Jack Schaefer with the FBI. Are you going to arrest me? I said, no, I said, I want to talk to you. And I said, get all your skinhead buddies out here on the porch. <laughs> and I said, look, there's a lot of trouble going on with you guys and the, and the, the minorities in the, in the neighborhood with the, the beatings and the stabbings. And I'm here to make that stop. Okay. I just want to let you know, put you on notice. I'm up here and it's going to, it's going to stop. And, uh, then I said, Oh, by the way, what are all those tattoos you got? I, I don't know anything about it. I catch spies for a living. I don't know anything about white supremacy. Can you teach me? You know, and I and I and I told him I said I understand the white supremacists are very proud to be white and know they're superior to all their other people. So I need to know more about how you feel. And they, they you put them in a position where they have to talk because one of the guys didn't want to talk. And I said, oh, so you're not a real white supremacist because oh, you just told me that white supremacists are proud of being white and know they're superior to other races. Obviously, you have some doubts because you don't want to talk about it. You said, no, 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 I'm with, I'm with the white supremacy. Oh, okay, tell me what's going on then. And I just went to see them every day. I went to see a couple of white supremacists at their home or where they hang out and just chit-chat with them about family life, about what they're doing, how's life treating them. And eventually I got to know them so well that when they started committing crimes, I just went to the house and told them, and they confessed right away. So it's just a matter of developing that relationship. When you say they confessed right away, were, were they, was it more of a bragging thing? Like they just were so comfortable with you. They couldn't help speaking. Like they dropped their guard or. Well, they knew, they knew I knew cause I know them. So and, that, uh, you were so implanted in the neighborhood at that point that, you know, like if something happens in my neighborhood, I know who's going to be responsible kind of thing. Yeah, and I'll tell you, and I'll tell you that the, the ending, we'll skip a lot, but I'll tell you the ending is they, they tried to, uh, one of the skinheads tried to kill one of, one of the investigators or the prosecutor in court with a shiv. They snuck into the courtroom. Wow. And I went, I went back and talked to the guy. I said, why are you, why do you want to kill me? What's, what's the story here? And he says, well, I said, is it because I put you in jail? I'm going to put you in jail for a long time? He said, no, that's your job. He said, I don't mind you doing that. I said, well, what do you mind? What's the problem? He says, you betrayed our trust. We thought you were like a father figure to us. You were somebody that we talked to every day and kind of, you know, let, let our feelings go. And we, we 
we were friends with you. We that's the betrayal that they didn't like is that friendship betrayal. Not the fact I was putting them in jail. They said, ah, we knew we were going to jail. That's your job. But the fact that betrayed us. So I developed really good rapport with these kids. Kids. Uh, wow, they 18, couldn't, 19, they couldn't separate so. those two things, huh? Or, no, or they, they couldn't. Thought the, they thought they were separate things. And that, and that's the first time in their life, most of them told me, that they've ever had a father figure. Somebody that would tell them, don't do this. This is wrong. Somebody they could actually talk to because I called them health and welfare check. I would just knock on the door and say, I'm here for the health and welfare check. Come out here on the porch. Let's talk. How's it going? What's going on in your life? Are you frustrated? Are you trying to look for a job? You know, tell me about what's going on. How are you getting along with your parents and your, your neighbors and friends? And they would actually, it was almost like a therapy session for them. Hmm. So that's what got them angry. Not to say everyone thought, oh, you're putting them in jail. No, that's not why they're mad. They're mad because they felt I betrayed that trust that we developed. And of course, it wasn't, it was like a fake trust for me. I didn't trust those guys, but that's what, that's emotionally, that's what they needed. They needed someone to, to guide them and at least somebody that would listen to what they have to say. And, you know, the, the other thing I, I, I just happened to think about. <clears throat> We had a, uh, a a worker, you know, I, I can't remember, the plumber or electrician came into the house, and he was kind of, you know, in a sour mood. And you know what he did that really I thought was a good idea? He said, you know, I'm in a really bad mood today. Things aren't going well. And once I saw that or heard what he had to say, I thought to myself, oh, so he's not mad because he doesn't like the job. He's not mad because he doesn't like me. He's just having a bad day, like all of us have bad days. So that that uh, self uh, revelation or that self disclosure really helped me to like that guy. And then, of course, there is the rule of self disclosure. If you self disclose things that you normally wouldn't tell people, then then they will like you. So that may be, if, if you are in a bad mood, or you do snap at, at the homeowner because you're frustrated because something's not working right. Then you can say, oh, I'm having a bad day today. Okay, you know? so as we as we would call it, if you see it, say it. So even pointing that uh, lens onto yourself where, you know, if you know that you're going to do something or say something or in you're in, in, in a certain mind frame that's going to affect the homeowner poorly just bringing it up 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 front maybe even apologizing for it up front can change that whole dynamic oh yeah you can say well if i if i do anything a little little out of ordinary today just i apologize for it because you know the baby was up all night crying or the baby was sick last night i didn't get much sleep i'm a little on edge right now so i apologize if (laughs) if something goes wrong I knew I was going to be talking to the feds this morning, so I was up all night. <laughs> <laughs> Only the guilty man runs when no one chases. Remember that. Oh, I like that. So what's uh, what are the, the um, differences in, I mean, you've lived a pretty cool life. And actually, before I get to that question, I want to ask you, you pretty quickly glossed over something that really stuck out to me where you said I was in law enforcement and then went into the FBI but how did that how did that transition work? How did you go from just law enforcement right into the FBI? Is that a long process, or do you apply, or do they come tap you on the oh, shoulder? 
No, you have to apply, and it takes uh, probably a, a, a six. Well, it takes eight eight months to a year for the whole process. To you know, the background checks, and uh, you have to go through some interviews, background checks, health checks, polygraph, background check. Okay, so make sure that seems like a job. You're a loyal American. It's a job interview, but it's. <clears throat> it's a process that, that takes eight to 12 months. So if you wanted to apply to the FBI today, I wouldn't even expect to see any job offers until next year. Okay. Got you. But it is, it is something you look to them for. They're not look. they're not out searching the, uh, the, uh, forest. No, they have to give you an idea. There was, when I signed up, there was 16,000 qualified applicants. These people had already been, cleared and they were waiting for a, a start date and they, they, the FBI was hiring 325 agents the year I signed on and I was fortunate to be one of the 325 agents so it's highly competitive any idea how many people would have applied for those 325 positions I don't know how many people would have applied for it but they have a they had a pool of 16,000 people that already cleared the whole process and they were waiting to get hired. Oh, wow. So not even that applied, but had actually been cleared minus the people who did not clear. <clears throat> yeah. We don't know what, who, who knows what, what that number could have been. Wow. So and, you, were, uh, you were very fortunate and probably, uh, I'm, I'm guessing very well earned that spot. Well, they were, it, it, I was fortunate because I, I, uh, I got my private pilot's license. And they were looking for pilots at the time. And they just went through the 16,000 people and looked for pilots. And uh, they called me. So it was just fortunate that I had a pilot's license. Oh, nice. Okay. So that kind of made you a shoe in there. Yeah. And a lot of times they look for language people. Uh, computer. Right now they look for computer people, Chinese speakers, you know, Middle, Middle Eastern uh, speakers uh, and big on cybersecurity now. So if, if somebody knows anything about cybersecurity, the FBI will pick you out of the, six, the pool of 16,000 qualified applicants and say, hey, we need uh, cybersecurity, so you're hired. In fact, one of our students, you know, was a major, he was a law enforcement major, but he, he did a double major in computer cybersecurity. They hired him right out of the university. Wow. For cybersecurity. Because they had a, a strong need when, you know, there was a, all the hacking going on. So he's, that's all he does is work on cybersecurity now, tracking down uh, hackers. So he's fortunate because he got pulled out because of that skill he had. So you were law enforcement, FBI agent, uh, catching spies, and then now... Uh, also author, and now a professor at Western Illinois University. Is that right? That's correct, yes. So what, if you could, I, I imagine it's probably like picking your favorite kid, um, which I would never do on air, so don't even ask me to, Nate. Um, <laughs> but it, did you have one that you would say was your favorite, or how? and how do they, you know, how did the other two help with, um, I'm sure 
you know, you need all the life experience you can get with being an author, but how did being a federal agent and a police officer help you be a better professor and deal with that uh, career? Because it gives you bona fides or it gives you credibility because, you know, I, I give speeches and talks all over the country to, to law enforcement people. And when I get up and talk, they say, oh, the way this guy's talking, he's been there, he's done that. Let's listen to what he has to say. So it gives you a lot of bona fides. And how I got my PhD was I, I was invited to, to become a behavioral analyst with the FBI. And they said, well, you should probably formalize your training and, and get your PhD. So I did. And uh, that enhanced, in turn, enhanced my ability when you when you write books and they say, oh, this is Dr. Schaefer, PhD, whatever. That gives you some credibility. It gave me the opportunity to teach school at the university because that requires a PhD. So it kind of all has laid very nicely in place. And I also have, you know, military. I was in the Merchant Marines there, the Army and the Marine Corps. And, you know, it all helps. Everything oh. that I do helps. Well, thank you for your service you know, there. As uh, we're recording this, it's the day after Veterans Day. So happy Veterans Day and thank you for your service there. Yeah, and it was fun. Everything I do, I look at it as an adventure, a grand adventure. So, and I try to achieve as much as I can, and, you know, and work hard and do my best in each one of the positions I'm in. And it's surprising how everything I've done in the past seems to have built on, you know, the next job. It's like, for example, in your case, you spent two decades on a truck. And without the two decades on a truck, you couldn't do what you're doing now. Absolutely. And not. have not credibility. Even, not even, I mean, not just the management piece, but the even the hosting a podcast. If we didn't know anything about well, the trades, what, yeah, we wouldn't we wouldn't be here. Or even if you know a little bit about the trade and tried to fake it. People, you know, a tradesman could pick that up in a heartbeat, whether you've been in the trade or not, whether you actually done it or not. I'm sure you can pick that up if somebody tries to say, well, I used to be a carpenter, this or that. You go, yeah, right. Oh, yeah. We can just watch a Home Depot commercial or a uh, movie about a plumber and just sit there banging your head against the desk like, what are they supposed to be doing? <laughs> <laughs> no, exactly. But you can't, you can't fake people in the field because those people are experts in what they do. That's what a lot of homeowners don't realize. It, it takes years. To, to walk into a house and say, oh, I need the, the, like the guy walked into our furnace and he looked at it and he goes, oh, the, the little air hole was clogged up. You need a new this thing. So he went out to the truck, got it, put it in. What's that worth? You know. Thousands. Even for, yeah, <laughs> thousands. No, it, 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 and I'm sure you've had that same experience where you walk into the house and you say, oh, I know exactly what's wrong. But how long did it take you to learn to be able to diagnose a problem that quickly fix it. And then you move on to the next project. Absolutely. We talk about that all the time. You're not, you're not paying for the part. You're not paying for the two minutes it took to fix the part. You're paying for the 20 years it took for you to figure out what part and how to fix it. Absolutely. And that's why I'm amazed that when people walk in out, Oh, it's this, well, I would have never thought about that. It would have taken me how many years on the, uh, how many hours on the YouTube to figure that out. <laughs> right. <laughs> You're right, and that's where I go when I have a problem. I go to YouTube, but how long does it take to to get up to, to expertise? So speaking it's like, of, you know, I built a, a 
well, I was going to say, I built a screened-in porch, and time I got finished, I wish I knew all the skills I learned along the way, you know, at the beginning of the project. So it might have been better to have a carpenter come in and just do it right the first time. <laughs> so, Jack, speaking of skills that you've learned along the way, and, and I want to tie this kind of back into what we do here. So inevitably, our technicians, plumbers, and electricians are going to walk into a situation, and they're going to identify how to fix it, and then they're going to have to discuss the most uncomfortable piece of that, which is how much is this going to cost? Uh, you know, that that uh, conversation can elicit multiple responses, anything from frustration to relief to um, get out of my house to go ahead and do this right away and everything in between. Um, sometimes it kind of turns into a little bit of a, a, a negotiation, a hostage negotiation, you might say. So and I understand that you've had plenty of experience dealing with people um, with adverse opinions or, or kind of, you know, you're trying to work through difficult conversations like that. So maybe tell us a little bit about how our guys can best approach uh, a challenge like pricing or, or those types of obstacles. And then maybe also give us a story of something in the field that you've experienced either in the FBI or the police or any of your other uh, vast experiences there and how that ties back into having difficult conversations and being able to overcome obstacles. I think, the best way to do that is to provide an explanation. Say, this, this is what costs for this. And kind of, you don't have to, you know, uh, reveal your, your secrets of how you, you know, come, come to your pricing, but at least you could say, this is what it costs for the, the, uh, the equipment. This is what it costs for labor because it takes extra number of hours to put this equipment in to make it work right. And you do want it to work right, don't you? Yes. And then you say, then this is only a one-time expenditure that you won't have to incur for another 10 to 15 years. And if you don't uh, get this quality product initially, then you're going to be spending this money twice over the years. So just start explaining to them. It costs money for overhead. We have secretaries. When you call our office, you do want to talk to a person, don't you? Well, of course you do. You don't want to talk to a computer. You don't want to leave a message. Well, it costs money for that person to be there. We have to pay their health benefits, their vacation benefits, their salary, and those types of things. So there's a lot of there's a lot more that goes into pricing than just my labor and the cost of the equipment. And the reason I can say this is because remember I told you about the window experience we had with the forty thousand dollar window. Yeah, I went like. Why? And, oh, I'll tell you more specifically. $10,000 for a front door. Go figure. <laughs> you know, I can I can go down to a Home Depot and get one for like $250. So I said, why on earth does it cost $10,000 for you to put in a door? And then he said, well, there's just a lot going into it. I said, no. What goes into fixing a door that costs $10,000? Then he says, well, the door itself costs this. And then, then he started explaining the, the quality of the door and how it's made. And I go, okay, well, that's, that's kind of expensive. And then they have to take out the whole frame. He says, now that's labor. And then he says, then look around the office here. You see, we have staff working. We have to pay for that. We have to pay for the, the, the mortgage on the, on the building itself. And everything needs to be done before we can fix your door. I went, oh, okay, that kind of makes sense. So you see how that explanation would help people get over that? And the most important thing is 
you're buying a good door. You can go down to Home Depot, but you're not going to get a door like this. Right. There. And you're not going to get an expert to put it in that we're, we're going to send to you. If you want to put it in, feel free to put it in, but good luck. If you haven't done this over and over and over again, you're going to have a difficult time and it won't fit just the right way. Yeah, that's that old quality business, work here. That old business triangle we, of quality, cost, and speed. You can have two, but you can't have all three. Right. So he just says, and then we're going to guarantee the work. If the door leaks, the door doesn't work, you call us, we'll come back and fix it. And that's easy to check our reputation, look online. You know, nowadays, nothing's a secret. So you know that we have good quality because look at our reviews. You see how you can talk around. So either you want something quality and it's done right, or you want something less expensive, done wrong. So you can choose, sir. What what would you like to do? Well, I think I'll pick the one that's wrong. You know, the cheap way. But sometimes it's all people can afford is the cheap way. Then you can say, well, if you do want to go that way, then you got to remember and then explain the differences and say, now you can make a knowledgeable decision. So if you want to take a chance and gamble that this thing's going to last as long and you'll be satisfied with it, and if that's the case, then we go ahead and you can make that decision. But I want to make sure that you're, you, you, you're, you know the consequences of your decision. Jack, we Does that use, make sense? Yeah, we use, thank you for that. We use a, uh, uh, a sales training program here called Sandler, and we've several of the people in the office have gone through that. And uh, in that process, they talk about intellectual smoke screens and how typically somebody will put up at least three intellectual smoke screens about why they don't want to or are not interested or would not like to move forward. And they call them smoke screens because, you know, it's not actually a wall. It sort of looks like a wall. And it's not necessarily the truth. It may be a piece of the truth, but not the whole entirety of it. Uh, are you familiar with that concept? And then how would you go about addressing, kind of weaving your way in and out of getting to the actual truth of the decision as opposed to what they're telling you at face value? Well, I would I would actually use a presumptive statement. You say, it, it seems to me that this is, is an issue for you, but not the main issue. I'm getting a sense there's something else that is bothering you about this. You start to use that empathic statement. Yeah. You recognize that, that this is an issue and you're, you're saying, okay, I recognize I can validate your issue here, but I'm getting this sense that there's something else that's bothering you. Something else that you're looking for. That's not sitting right with you. And then they and come back a with a well statement. That's an, <laughs> yeah. Well, that means yes. You know, it, what you're doing is you're using a, what I call it a, a, an empathic presumptive. It's an empathic statement, but it makes a presumptive statement also. There's something else there. So you recognize what they do and say, oh, there's something else. And they'll either say yes, no, or maybe so. And you, you, now you're getting to figure out what the problem is. Because you don't want to confront them and say, hey, you're putting up a smoke screen. Just, you know, you don't want to, you just want to say, hmm, I'm, I'm getting the feeling that there's something else here. Let's talk about that. And they'll either confirm it or deny it. So, Jack, uh, one thing is uh, we kind of want to bring it in for a landing here and respect some of your time today and really appreciate what you've given us so far. Um, 
but we have we have so many people answering the phones for our business because that's everything starts on the phone for us. You know, uh, people don't drop by and schedule a plumbing call. They don't um, write us a letter and say that they would like to uh, have one of our electricians come out. They they call and they ask. And when you're on the phone, as I'm sure you're very well familiar with, you have no ability to communicate body language, which is by far the vast, uh, the, the largest communication tool that we have as humans. In fact, even as I'm saying this, I'm waving my hands that nobody can see. Uh, and so if, if you could give some advice to people on the phone to kind of work their way through creating likability and building trust and um, establishing that type of rapport, what would be your advice? Well, that verbally is a little more difficult, but what you want to do is, it, it, it all depends. Like, if I call somebody, I want to know, when can you come out, and and when can I get this thing fixed? So, I, I think if you just be kind and, and, and understand that that person's life is, is in crisis, and you don't, like we talked earlier, you don't get that callousness on the phone, like, well, we can't get to it for a week. Well, you know, that's not acceptable. So maybe you can work with that person to, to just be nice to the person, you know, and listen to the person and let them maybe vent a bit. I, you know, I don't know. That's a tough, that's a tough one. You know, that's where people run into internet problems when they date. <laughs> it is I tough. Mean, and yet, I don't know. I don't I, I don't know if we've ironed that one out yet or not, but yeah, that's something that, I mean, we're constantly trying to improve, um, from that angle. And we have, we have a really great call team here that, uh, does such a great job <laughs> of creating empathy over the phone and using their voice and their tonality to communicate as much as possible. But it is something that we're always looking for. Like, what's that next thing? What's, what's one more piece that we can do to make ourselves better. I think I'll work on that. Maybe I'll, I'll uh, oh, do yeah. well there. Your next book, and we'll have you on to discuss it. <laughs> no, that's a, that's a good area. Maybe I'll, I'll really focus on the, the telephone, how to develop quicker the telephone. Because you don't want somebody chit-chat with you when he has a business to be done, but you don't want to be not friendly. You don't want to be arrogant. You want to be nice people. You want to be able to communicate with them effectively. Absolutely. So, you know, maybe one way I was, I just happened to think is if you speak in simple declarative sentences, it, uh, studies have shown that if you speak in simple declarative sentences, people find you more truthful and more trustworthy than if you use long, complicated sentences. Can so you give you us know, an write example something, of that? Well, if you write something in an email and you say, well, uh, we were thinking maybe we just next week we can do this, but we got this guy out here doing these projects and we got this project. You could say, no, next week we're, we're pretty busy. We have three projects. We can get to you next Thursday, next Friday. So it's very short, simple declarative sentences. And, and, and you know, taking out all the, the fluff. Okay. So not, not telling them every, every uh, detail of the reason, and, and four different ways, but just saying, Hey, we're, we're uh, jam packed this week. Next week works better for us. Yeah. Just simple declarative sentences. And people say, Oh, that's, they, they interpret simple declarative sentences more truthful. So if anything, 
and I'm just talking off the top of my head right now based on some research I just saw that simple declarative sentences seem to be uh, more powerful than more complex sentences. So maybe speak in simple declarative sentences. Uh, so I'm going to speak in some declarative sentences, right? simple declarative sentences right now. Jack, this has been fantastic, and I can tell that there's so much more involved in what we didn't get to cover today. I mean, you were just hitting on tidbits and, and pieces of of things that I think are so much deeper. Could so, be whole books in yeah. and of themselves. And in yeah. fact, I'm sure they are. So uh, where can our listeners find out more about you, Jack? Uh, what is uh, maybe your most recent book? Where can they find you on social media? How can they get in touch with you or learn more about this? And then are you working on any upcoming projects? Well, when I, when I uh, the, the books are available. The first book I wrote was The Like Switch. And uh, that's available in stores it's available on uh, amazon and that's and like it's available L-I- on e- l-i-k-e K-E not light right switch no like l-i-k-e switch Got that's it. how to win influence people and win people over and uh they that's available anywhere ebooks apple books you know uh and the other book the latest book is called the truth detector and that is getting you know, using elicitation to get people to tell you the truth before they have a chance to lie and that's available on all the uh, normal places you can buy books. Uh, we also have a, a, the Like Switch uh, uh, Facebook page, and I'm on LinkedIn. So my name is, is uh, widely distributed throughout the Internet. So if you just put my name in, you'll, you'll find a way to contact me. Awesome. Okay, and I uh, personally came across you by reading um, The Truth Detector, and that is available on Audible. For, for those like yeah. myself who are audiobook readers, uh, again, my eyes don't read a whole lot, but my ears are prolific readers. So the Audible has uh, the light switch and the truth detector. I've seen seen the, the light switch on there as well. Yeah, and they're, they're good books, and they're filled with... I wrote the books in a way that I would want to read a book. In other words, cut the fluff out, get to the point, give me a technique I can use when I put the book down. And I think that's what makes the book so popular. And they're very, it's very usable. I'll, I'll add, you don't have to be a trained FBI agent for two decades or a law enforcement officer to get a lot out of these books. I, I uh, you even, you even bring up selling in the truth detector multiple times as if you know, you're, you're also um, writing to people who sell for a living. So it was very helpful and very impactful. And I appreciate that book. Before we let you go, Jack, would you mind? Would you mind? Uh, I don't want to put you on the spot, but telling us a fun story or a cool story from your law enforcement or, or uh, federal agent days. Well, you know, you know, one story that always is kind of memorable. I was a, a a rookie. I was on the Hinsdale Police Department maybe a month, maybe two months on my own. I went through my training period, and then I had to go out and be on my own. One of the first traffic stops I made, I was on Ogden in uh, Hinsdale, and this car I caught on radar was doing like 60-something in a 35-mile-an-hour zone. So I flipped my squad car around and chased after him. I finally caught him at Route 83 on the on-ramp there. And I hit the lights. I got out of my car. I walked up. I asked for the driver's license and registration. I said, sir, I'm going to issue a ticket for the one so many over the speed limit. 
And then I walk back to my car and write the ticket and run his plate. And I couldn't get into my car because I locked my keys in the car. <laughs> and, the lights, and, the, and the lights are going. And I'm going like, son of a God, what am I going to do now? This is embarrassing because, you know, I've been a civilian so long. And when I grew up in Chicago, you always lock your, your car. So every time you get out, I had the habit of locking the door. And so I told the guy, I said, sir, due to technical difficulties, I'm going to, I'm going to give you a break today. And he goes, oh, if you lock you locked your keys in the car? I go, yes, sir, I did. <laughs> he goes, it's my lucky day. <laughs> I'm surprised off, at that point you, goes. you didn't respond to him. Well, I, I wouldn't necessarily say that I locked them in the car. <laughs> <laughs> well, you know, that brings, brings to mind another funny story is saying that there was a guy going like 70 down Ogden, and I, and I got him stopped. And I said, sir, I need your driver's license and registration. I'm going to issue a ticket. And he gives me his pilot's license. I said, sir, this is your pilot's license. I wanted your driver's license. He says, I thought that would be more appropriate because I was really flying, wasn't I? (laughs) (laughs) Wow, (laughs) nice try. (laughs) Did he also get away without a ticket? Yes, because I had a rule. If somebody told me a story that I had never heard before, I always gave a break. <laughs> Good to know. <laughs> and I thought that was clever. I started laughing. I said, well, I'm going to give you a warning. <laughs> and off he went. But nice. those are kind of funny stories that, that happen. That's great, Jack. Uh, Thanks for it, sharing those. Now that, now, that, now that you mention it, a lot of stories are coming. You know, we make a lot of industrial strength mistakes when we're young. <laughs> That's for sure. Well, this has been so good, Jack, to have you on. I think our audience is going to appreciate even some of these like small tidbits, yet super practical, super uh, applicable into their everyday lives. And so uh, we've enjoyed having you on the show and we look forward to additional work from you and maybe uh, eventually a book about telephone communications. Uh, But for now, we're going to leave it here. And thank you so much for joining us on the show today. Okay, my pleasure. It was great to meet you, Jack. Thank you so much for your service and, and all your endeavors and everything you've done for this nation. I hope I, I hope we, we got done what you needed to get done. Absolutely. hundred percent. We uh, actually, okay. we, we'd, we'd love to have you back on the show maybe next year. Oh, okay. Anytime. All right. Thanks a lot, Jack. Enjoy your morning. All right. Okay. Bye-bye. Bye-bye. <clears throat> hey, I hope you found this episode to be as, uh, fun and exciting and practical as I did. Uh, Dr. Jack Schaefer there provided so many good insights into just creating a a likable personality about you in many of the things that we do non-verbally. And I think we kind of overlook that sometimes in how we were feeling from the day before or we're feeling from the call before or something that we just hung up over the phone. You know, we're pursing our lips and those types of things and we don't even realize it and we're displaying that type of negativity or upset or grouchy type of demeanor, even though we're not intending to do that. And so it's good to just keep in front of mind how you can create a a persona to the customer that you are likable and get them to get on board with that. And then I think from there, you know, the conversations become so much easier. We hope that uh, this conversation has been beneficial for you. And we trust that every episode that we're bringing to you is giving you good insight and helping you become better. If you have ideas or suggestions for topics that you would like us to cover, we'd sure love to know about that. Leave us a review, preferably a five-star one. 
And uh, we'd love to hear what your ideas are for making yourself better and finding the next level in your own career. As for us here at the Waste No Day podcast, we appreciate each one of you doing what you do on every single day. And we challenge you to choose to wake up each morning and waste no day. Thank you.